Hello, everyone. We've got another preview here for you. Uh, this one is also, like the last one, part of our Women's History of Labor in the United States series. This is part two, and we go over just so much stuff. We don't even, we get just past the Civil War and not even in to 1900 yet. So we're still going through so much of, of a long time ago. And if you want the full thing, you can go to patreon.com slash workstoppage and support us with $5 a month. It's the only way that we get any funding for doing all of this intense research that allows us to do these big multi-part series. And also, we just genuinely appreciate it. So I won't ramble on anymore, and I'll let you get to the preview. Solidarity. All that to say, they weren't being paid shit right. for, for working 14 hours a day. Because, like, look, whether that's $50 today, whether it's $500 today, that's like a hundred, that's almost a hundred. That's what is it? Like, that's a 84 hour week. So I, it's like, whatever that amount is, it's too low. And, in, and right. it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And so, these intolerable conditions led the women to form the Troy Collar Laundry Union, led by Kate Mullaney. And they were inspired by the local ironworkers union. And they immediately began negotiating with the bosses. And in less than a year, they had won significant wage increases from two to three dollars a week to eight to fourteen dollars a week, which is of course still too low, but they raised the minimum wage by four hundred percent. I mean, it's amazing, really. <laughs> So, like, that's some incredible organizing. They were not able to secure, unfortunately, a decrease in hours from the atrocious 14 hours a day, but they were at least able to bring their compensation up a little bit, you know, to maybe from sub-poverty to poverty wages, which makes a real tangible material difference in people's lives. Well, yeah, it's funny because, like, it feels like a little bit in terms of, like, how many echelons of, like, uh, being paid fairly they actually moved up, but, like, in terms of a ratio, as you said, it's actually an incredible amount. Like, a 400% raise is, like... If you asked for that today, people would be like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And yet, for some, if you're making minimum wage today, you probably do. You probably yes. should be getting a 400% mm -hmm. wage increase. But w one of the things that this then enabled them to do by, by going through this organizing, by forming a permanent organization, by winning these wage increases, they're, the workers of the Troy Collar Laundry Union were finally actually able to save a bit for themselves. And then when the iron molders went on strike the next year in 1866, the laundry union donated a thousand dollars to their cause in solidarity, which that's a shitload of money in mm -hmm. 1865. And that actually led to the Troy trades assembly, basically like the district labor council for, for the city at the time to then offer the women of the Troy collar laundry union membership in their district labor council, which, of course, today we would think, well, of course, you should have, once they formed, you should have just immediately offered that. But this right. was a huge step forward for the time because these had been confined entirely to unions made up only of men. And so to recognize that, yeah, no, these people are workers just like all the rest of us and we should be fighting together was a key step forward. And it would never have happened without, you know, the organizing of, of leaders like Kate Mullaney and the rest of these workers in Troy. And I really wanted to mention, even though, you know, we don't have a ton of details of their strike, I really wanted to mention them specifically because they might be, depending on who you ask, and there is some debate over this, the very first 
what we would think of as an official trade union for women workers in the U.S. There's debate between whether you count, say, like the Lowell Female Reform Associations, although I personally would consider those more mutual aid societies because you're not really serving as the sole collective bargaining agent necessarily for a place. Mm. But whether you go back to there or you come up to, say, right after the Civil War with the Women Shoemakers of Lynn or the Troy Collar Laundry Union, this period around at the end of the 1860s really sees the shift from the first proto-unions in those first few decades following the first strike in 1824 to really the first organizations we would think of as real modern collective bargaining organizations of of unions today. And so this was a a big step forward qualitatively because it really brought us into this, the beginning of a more modern era in, in the trade union movement. And black women played a major role in forming this too, especially in the South, because immediately after the Civil War, on June 20th, 1866, recently freed black women working as laundry workers announced that they were forming a union to fight for fair wages. These workers in Jackson, Mississippi, were not only the first union specifically of black women workers in the state, they were actually the first trade union of any kind in Mississippi. And because these women worked basically as contractors, hired on an individual basis by various families, without a union, their wages became a race to the bottom because they were all competing against each other as individuals. And so by organizing, they were able to set rates that they could actually survive on. Now, of course, unsurprisingly, they were immediately attacked in the capitalist press with... Again, unsurprisingly, extremely racist attacks on their intelligence, uh, asserting that, oh, northern white radicals must have put the black women workers up to it. <laughs> it's so but They couldn't have wild. come up with this on their own. The, the strategy of, of saying that one group that wants something is actually another larger group that you're already like primed to be afraid of is like... It's so wild that that's just been the strategy forever and they still mm-hmm. use it and it still works on a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I mean it, it yeah, it's it, incredibly insulting, extremely racist, but you know, the these workers didn't let these attacks get them down and they were very clear on their goals. They they issued an open letter to the people of Jackson, Mississippi stating, "Quote, we do not wish in the least to charge exorbitant prices, but desire to be able to live comfortably if possible from the fruits of our labor." end quote, which, I mean, seems about the simplest. Like, it's barely even a demand. That seems to be more like a description of what people claim society is. Yeah, that's the most <laughs> normal thing I've ever heard anyone say, full stop. And so, yeah. just just to be clear, there were originally, so this is, a lot of this is piecework, basically, yes. where you're mm-hmm. paid by the piece, and, and they were kind of, com- like, pitted against each other mm-hmm. based on, you know, they each got different rates based on, you know, preference or, or this or that, and they wanted a standardized and mm-hmm. better rate that was across the board, but it was still piecework. Yeah, exactly. Because mm-hmm. basically what they would say is, you know, it's like whether it was by the pound or by the load of laundry or whatever, they would because they would constantly come up to the people they hired and just be like, well, I can get, you know, X amount lower from this other person over there, whether they were real or not, oftentimes not, and just constantly cut down to the absolute bone, the wages that they were paying these folks. And so by coming together and setting u- unified rates, for all of the the workers, they were able to say, no, 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 no. There is a minimum below which we cannot accept. And that you have to pay that. You can't just pay us these ridiculous sub uh, poverty wages that nobody could survive on. 
another one of these problems of ruinous competition. Mm -hmm. Um, and so these, of course, these efforts were extremely like difficult. Like we know how hard it is to organize in the South in 2024 and this is 1866. So like this was an extraordinary challenge that these, the, these workers had stepped up to and, you know, the racism and the just anti-worker attitudes of, of, of the ruling class, of course, combined with harsh state repression, they made it basically, it was extremely difficult, if not impossible, for any labor organization of any kind of black workers to survive for very long in the South. But I just think it speaks so much to the militancy of these workers that they were not, you know, intimidated by that and that they they came together and they formed a union and they stood up to these bullshit attacks. And even though, you know, it, it ultimately didn't survive into this, you know, permanent organization. One of the reasons that I think it's so important to look at these events, especially events that didn't become giant successes, sure. is to destroy the notion that is commonly thrown out there that like worker organizing is an exception, that worker organizing is some, this is something that only pops up when you have an especially bad boss mm-hmm. or when you have a very brutal, abusive workplace. It's like, no. Literally, it's about exploitation. It's always been about exploitation, and exploitation's baked into the system. So from the beginning of industrial capitalism, there has been organizing. And I think it's so important for us to emphasize that because it it breaks down a lot of the propaganda that we hear about the union movement. And so 15 years after the 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 women of Jackson, Mississippi had organized basically a, uh, you know, a laundry collective. Uh, the black women laundry workers of Atlanta came together to form a union for the same reason to set uniform labor rates that could support a family instead of their sub poverty wages. Now that there's, they launched a strike in order to force recognition of these rates and their strike began small at the start of July, 1881. But by the end of the month, over 3000 washerwomen had joined the walkout. The local ruling class went uh, a little wild uh, in response to this, at the audacity of the workers to actually be like, you should treat us like people and pay us enough to live on. And, so many of these women were fired. Uh, landlords actually began raising the rates specifically on striking workers in order to try and either force them to cave or drive them out of town. Uh, and of course, as always, strikers were viciously harassed by local police. I mean, that's just a, a universal. <laughs> so we've got, you know, like bourgeois and like rentier class solidarity along mm-hmm. with the uh, running dogs uh, doing their normal bit. Oh yeah, no, we got we got the whole uh, the whole doom squad together here, <laughs> um, and the local media tried the exact same sorts of attacks that the Jackson, Mississippi community did. They said that oh, the, you know, we have very content bl- black workers here. They always throw that in there. They're like, are they? And it's I I hate even like repeating it because the phrasing is so racist. But they're just like, our blacks are happy, and it's just like. Oh my God. <laughs> Even the way you are phrasing this is so racist. <laughs> like it's insane. But but once again, they did the same thing. They're like, oh no, these these women had to have been put up to it by 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 outside agitators, radicals from the north. Uh and, and also, of course, they had to be radical men. That's the other thing. They can't even, even though they hate northern radicals, they can't put up with the idea that women would actually speak out. For themselves, they still have to know it. It must be those dastardly radical men from the north. That's the thing. So it's the same shit. They just cannot believe 
that the people that they employ would, would fight back against their oppression. So in addition to all of those other attacks, the, the city council of Atlanta threatened to impose a tax on any unions of washerwomen, to which the union responded that they'd be happy to pay the fee as long as it came with a recognition of their labor and, quote, full control of the city's washing at our own prices. We hope to hear from your council on Tuesday morning. We mean business this week or no washing, end quote. <laughs> And I love the way that they responded because it's there's there's no, you know, like, well, look, we're not asking for much. You know, there's no like genuflecting. They're just like, no, like, look, what we're asking for is reasonable and you'll treat it that way. You're not getting your stuff washed. It's pretty simple. Yeah, also, I, full I, control I, I, over the prices like uh-huh. that's a demand. I, it's yeah, great. I would describe this message as terse and. <laughs> effective uh <laughs> yeah well absolutely and it i love the response to their statement is so funny because they completely called their bluff the ruling class in response to the women like refusing to back down from all their threats in the press was all right fine you're not going to stop your your horrible attempt to form a union we'll replace you we're going to automate <laughs> this work we're going to build an industrial steam laundry and put all of you out of business and good, the good washermen are like okay do it <laughs> and unfortunately in atlanta they had no facilities for producing enough steam to actually do that they didn't have the production facilities necessary to produce the boilers needed to make such steam uh and so that was a complete bluff and there was no actual real project to build a steam laundry wow kind of like replacing uh actors and coders with ai a little bit uh Uh, maybe a lot actually (laughs) yeah that i that's one of i think the very important lessons from this is that it's like the bosses are always going to threaten you with shit, but a lot of the times they are bluffing because you have them scared shitless. Yeah, well, because the worst thing that could happen is you could realize they're full of shit and then they have to take a different tack. But the mm-hmm. best thing that could happen is they could fuck you up real bad. So it's super important to be on your toes. Yeah, and since these women, you know, called their bluffs and they had no way to fight back, you know, the bosses eventually had to cave and and they were forced to agree to a set of union rates. And so... That's some of the ways that, you know, you saw women struggling to form the first local unions uh, coming out of the Civil War. But one of the things, you know, that would set the tone, because as we're trying to develop the labor movement here coming out of the 1860s, when you get into questions of how do trade unions set their policy towards women workers, that a lot of that tends to follow organizing at the national level. And so we're at the very beginnings of national labor organizing here. And But interestingly, from the very beginning, these the very first national labor organizations did have to address the issue of women workers. And they often said, emphasizing the word said... Things that were a lot more progressive than I think we would have expected for the time. And so, you know, one union made up predominantly of men that did admit women workers was the National Labor Union. We have plowed, we have planted, we have gathered into barns, done the same work as the men with babies in our arms. But you won't find our stories books you read we were there we're still here fighting for the things we need we were there in the factories we were there in the mills we were there in the mines and came home 
the textile mills in Lawrence To the sweatshops in New York From the fields in California Where our children had to work We fought to make a living Bread and roses was our cry Though they jailed and beat our bodies Our spirit never died We were there